We're working our way through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we have now come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we are going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20 uh, in a moment. I feel like today I have a lot of preliminary things I have to say before getting into the text, things that I want to say. Um, and I guess I want to start with a, um, a story about the first time I ever saw a girl and knew she was pretty. And that would have been kindergarten for me. Um, I was one of those just... I was kind of always aware the girls were pretty. And the uh, girl's name was Diana. And, uh, hey, Quinn. And our moms thought it would be cute for Diana and I to go on a, a kindergartner date. And so we did. It involved ice cream cones and a matinee of a movie called Windwalkers, which was a dramatic depiction of the plight of the persecution and relocation of Native Americans through the initiatives of Manifest Destiny held by the immigrants from Europe who were seeking power in the New World. And it was largely in subtitles. <laughs> and so um, I couldn't read. But I remember, I remember the date. And then later in third grade, this girl named Beth moved to town. And Beth was the occasion where I learned about the concept of a nemesis. Beth was, for a third grader, breathtakingly beautiful uh, to me. Um, I was like Charlie Brown at my desk with my hands on my chin, just looking at her. And one day, she was especially pretty because for some reason she was especially happy. And she had this look on her face. She was just excited and she was smiling and she was nodding her head yes at something. And I thought, that is fantastic. What is she so happy about? And what it was was Doug. <laughs> on the other side of the room is holding up a piece of paper that says, Doug loves Beth. And in third grade, relational dynamics, are you my girlfriend, it said. And she was nodding her head, yes. And I was, I was devastated. I was so devastated that I approached Beth and said something to the effect of, this isn't fair because I want you to be my girlfriend. And then Beth did something that just made me so happy and so confused. She said, I am Doug's girlfriend, but I will be your girlfriend too. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had to think about this because mission accomplished, sort of, right? I mean, what I wanted was for Beth to be my girlfriend, and she said, I will be your girlfriend. And if what it meant was that I would have to share her with Doug, and I would have to sit at her left side while he sat at her right side, as I considered my options, I thought, I will do this. I will do this. <laughs> because half of Beth's love was way more than I thought I was going to get. 
And the question that I want to ask you is, how loved do you believe you can be? How loved do you believe you can be? In what ways are you settling for half of someone's heart? In what ways are you only giving half of your own heart? How loved do you believe you can be? That, I imagine, for a lot of people in this room, is a pretty painful question. Because if we're honest, our answer is not very. I don't believe that I can be very loved. And today, we're going to talk about a topic that is like a laser beam to the heart of the question, how loved can you be? And it's a topic that asks where you're settling for less love than what is possible. And the topic is sexual immorality. Having said that, I know that I have your undivided attention for the rest of the morning. Sexual immorality. This is one of the problems among many in the Corinthian church that Paul is writing to. When I say this, that we're going to talk about sexual immorality, some of you already think you know what I'm going to say. Some of you are thinking that's what preachers do. They talk about the evils of sexual immorality. I want to make you a promise that you can test me on at the end of this sermon, okay? The promise is this. This is not going to be a straighten up and fly right or God is going to get mad at you kind of sermon about sexual morality. That's not the point. That's not the point of the text. We, and the reason it's not going to be that kind of sermon is because the Bible's reasons for why you should care about your sexuality are not in order that you might keep a temperamental God from smiting you. And you're gonna see this in Paul's language. The reason that you should care about what the Bible has to say about sexuality is because that conversation is all about how loved you can be. It's all about how loved you were meant to be. And in our heart of hearts, we all hope that we can be more deeply loved than we ever dreamt. And the Bible says that is the case. The other reason that we should care about what the Bible has to say about sexuality is because, regardless of what you think, the Bible gives the highest view of sex that you will ever find. So that's where we're going with this, okay? There are going to be some points along the way where you might want to giggle. I'm just saying, it may happen. That's okay. Parents, if you're worried, I'm going to try to just walk a razor's edge here, okay? (laughs) That said, okay, let me see. Are there any more preliminaries? Yes. Okay, more preliminaries. Here you go. In talking about sexual morality and immorality, I have to define for you what I mean by sexual morality. And I'm going to do this in in such... uh, uh, There's just no way that we're going to be able to cover everything that there is to cover in the time that we have. And I want to be faithful to the text that's in front of us. So let me just say this. Um, There are boundaries that Scripture gives for what is appropriate in sex. It's March Madness right now. Basketball, right? Being played everywhere. Well, if basketball is not played in the parameters of the court that is designed for the game, the game makes no sense, right? If you're trying to slam dunk in the stands... People are going to be like, what in the world are you talking about? What is going on right now? So there are boundaries for sexual activity, and I'm going to tell you 
in very broad brushstrokes what the Bible says they are. It is exclusively only intended for a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Now, you can make arguments that people should be able to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage and outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. You can make those arguments. You just can't make them from Scripture. And I know that already I've alienated some people in this room. And already you might be thinking that I'm prudish or that I'm bigoted. I promise you that's not, that's not where my heart is in this. But this is what Scripture says. There are numerous commands that prohibit sex outside of marriage as well as many that uphold the sanctity, the sacredness of the sexual union in marriage. The other thing I need to mention is that the Bible does deal with the issue of heterosexuality versus homosexuality, which is another, just, isn't that just a huge, we could spend a year on this topic alone, right? Let me just say this. The Bible does actually doesn't talk about homosexuality a lot. It, it talks about heterosexuality a ton, but it doesn't talk about homosexuality a lot, but it does. There's about 12 places in Scripture where this topic is explicitly discussed, and in every single one of them, the intent of the text is to dissuade people from engaging in homosexual activity. So that is the, the content of Scripture, the... the, the What scripture has to say about homosexuality every time is don't do this. This isn't good. This isn't the way it's meant to be. So I told you I would raise more questions than we would answer this morning. And for now, I'm going to draw a line and say uh, sexual morality is exclusively in a marriage between a man and a woman. That's my working definition. Now, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 6 in a minute where Paul is talking about why this matters. And uh, I pray that we would all have ears to hear because, because Paul is making a case for why this is so important and why we need to understand it. And he's doing it by giving an exceptionally beautiful view of human sexuality. He's writing to a church that he is invested in, these Corinthians. He loves them. He planted this church. He's poured into their lives. He cares for them. He calls them saints in chapter one. These are people that he believes that the Lord has met and the Lord has done a work in them, that he has changed them. And yet he also regards himself as their spiritual father. And he's writing this letter because there are many places in their lives as a congregation where they are showing significant signs of spiritual immaturity. Their relationships with each other are struggling and broken and hurting. And he is writing to contend for them to grow in their faith and in their love for one another. And some of the things that we've seen them struggling with so far have been jealousy, envy. They've been breaking off into little factions, some saying Paul is our guy, others saying Apollos is our guy. And they've kind of all already started to split. They've, they've been turning a blind eye to immorality that's been happening in their own congregation. Some things that Paul has said, even the pagan world looks at some of the things that are going on and they shudder. At, and, and you guys aren't even mentioning it. You're not even talking about it. And then last week we talked about you're also suing each other. You're taking each other to court and you're relying on pagan courts to settle your disputes even though you're brothers and sisters in Christ. You see that there's just these 
spider fractions all, uh, fractures all over the place in this congregation, which reminds us of an important truth, and that is that the odds are decent that if there is one area of my life that is upside down relationally, there's probably lots of areas in my life that are upside down, right? And that's what we see happening. Paul now, in his list of things that he's addressing, says, and you're also, you also have this rampant sexual immorality that's happening in your own congregation, specifically with the prostitutes from the temple to Aphrodite up on the hill. And this is a part of what's going on in your midst. And so let's read the text and hear how Paul addresses the issue among them and then, and then unpack it. All right, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take a member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Pray with me. Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, what it is that you're trying to tell us about your love for us through this passage of Scripture. Father, would you give us correctable hearts? Would you give us humble hearts? Would you give us hearts that want to learn and understand? Father, if, if we are at all on the defensive already, Father, I pray that you would, you would back us off uh, so, that we would, so that we would consider uh, what it is that you're saying. Um, Lord, bring your word to life in us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you think that the Bible treats sex as something that is dirty or taboo or discreet, a topic of conversation that real Christian people should not be having, I pray that today's text would change the way that you think about that. Um, the Bible gives the highest view of sex that you're going to find anywhere, and today's text is an example of this. I hope that what you noticed as we read that passage, and if you were following along, is how much Paul talks about the significance of the body. This is important because we are a culture, just like the Corinthians, who are just crazy confused about the value, the worth, the dignity of our bodies. We, we, we turn our bodies into objects. We do this for ourselves. We do this with other people. And we, regard, we, don't, we just don't know what to think about our own bodies. And, 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 and often what happens then is, is we go into one of two ways of thinking about the body. And there are two ways that have been around forever. They were things that people in Corinth were dealing with. There were the Gnostics then and the super religious, not even super religious, but just religious people today who would say, the way I'm supposed to think about the body is that the physical world is bad. 
that the body's bad, that I shouldn't have any regard for the body, that we, we, that, that, that physicality is a sign of, of, of a weakness, and the body is inferior to the world of the soul and of the mind, and so I should just not think about that. But when you look at what Paul's writing here, how many times does he mention the body? He says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute, becomes one body with her? The two become one flesh. He says the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Glorify God in your body. This matters to Paul, that we have a good, right, healthy view of our physical bodies. The other view is not body equals bad, but is more body equals animalistic impulse. It's just this physical world of instinct, and that's just the way it is. And, uh, and, and, and to satisfy a physical appetite is nothing more than just nature, you know? And, and, and it shouldn't be complicated with things like commitment with things like affection, with promises. When he says, you know, you've, you, you, the, the body for food and food for the body, he's echoing a sentiment in Corinth that if I have an appetite, I should satisfy that appetite. If I'm hungry, I should eat. If I'm thirsty, I should drink. And it's the same way with sex, that it's just an impulse, and if I feel the impulse, I should satisfy the impulse. And Corinth, gosh, I mean, this would have been such a hard city to live in. This had this temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite and there were a thousand temple prostitutes who worked in that temple and every night the sun would go down and into the city they would go like, like a spider's nest, you know, and they'd just be everywhere. And what this means is, is that before the Christian church, everybody in Corinth participated in this. This was a part of their culture. It was woven into the fabric of who they are. What that means is that the odds are really good that every single man in that church had participated in this at one point or another and probably often. So that's part of their history. It's part of their story that they're bringing in. And the problem with the view that the body is bad, or that it's just physical impulse and that's all that it is and it shouldn't be connected to anything else, is that there is just so much that you have to dismiss or pretend isn't there or ignore in order to accept either of those. I mean, one of the most powerful ways that one human being can hurt another human being is through sex. You ever think about that? I mean, we have an incredible capacity to do damage to each other in this. And to say, eh, it's just an animalistic instinct doesn't gel with what we experience and what we know. So, what is Paul saying? He's not saying to these people in Corinth, look, any sexual desire that you have, you just need to kill. If you want to be a spiritual person, you just need to kill it. It can't be a part of your life. You just, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you need to understand human sexuality for the gift that it is as God intended it for you. Okay, so what does that mean then? I want you to notice that when Paul is writing to them, one of the things that he's 
arguing, which is just huge, is, is that his argument is more focused on who they are, who they really are as people, than it is on any behavior. That his, his argument for why they should abstain from sexual immorality is because of who they are as people. They're free people. They can do anything that they want, right? But he says not everything is good for you. You can do whatever you want, but not everything is good for you. You can do whatever you want, but if you do certain things, you will become slaves. You will become enslaved by that thing, right? I mean, I can, I can eat bacon every single meal, right? I can't eat bacon every single meal without consequence, and without becoming a slave to certain health hazards, right? But I can't, I'm free to do that. He's saying, look, just because you're free to do something doesn't mean that it's good for you. It doesn't mean that it's going to lead you to a place of freedom. It doesn't mean that it's going to lead you to a place where you are experiencing life as you were meant to. If all sex is, is the satisfaction of a physical impulse, then God says, you have a really low view of it. You have a really low view of it. And what's more, you also have a low view of yourself. Paul makes an astonishing claim here. He says, in verse 13, you are not meant for sexual immorality. Now think about that. That is loaded. That is a loaded statement. You are not meant for sexual immorality because it begs a question, doesn't it? What was I meant for? If I wasn't meant for that, then what was I meant for? And he gives an answer that's just as astounding. He says, you were meant for the Lord. You were meant for the Lord, to be loved by him, to be completely loved by him as a whole person. You were meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Wait, (laughs) what does he mean then? What What is he saying here? Paul is saying that the deepest longing in your heart is to be known and to be loved by God. That's it. That's the deepest longing in you is to be known and to be loved by the one who made you. The third grader who says, if if you'll be half my girlfriend, that's enough. God says, no, no, no. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. You are meant to be more loved than you could ever dream in your wildest imaginations. People think of sex as the highest expression of satisfaction and delight that a person can find. But Paul is saying, what if it's not? What if sex is not the pinnacle of delight, but instead it's a God-given signpost to something even better? What does Jesus call us? Now, we're... All right. Don't get weirded out by what I'm about to say, okay? What does Jesus call us? The church his bride. How much does he love us? He wants to marry us. That's how much he loves us. He wants us to be his bride. That kind of love. And we can't just then say, well, okay, then I need to think of human marriages and say he wants that. No, he wants that perfect And he's the perfect groom. There's so much affection. See, before you were made for sex in a moment, you were made for the Lord for all eternity. That's in your heart. Before you were designed to know what it means to be naked and unashamed in the company of a spouse who has pledged to love you for better or for worse in sickness and health till death do you part, you were made 
You were made to be fully known and to be fully loved by the one who made you by the word of his power, to be the object of his affection. Paul wants us to understand the depth and the wonder and the endlessness of our union with Christ when our faith is in him. He says it at the end of the text. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ, that we are more joined to Christ than we think, than we experience in life this side of glory, that we are intimately forever connected 